Okay, so we're going to finish up Job next week. Uh, again, just, to, uh, just to reiterate some key points. So in the Old Testament, there are books that, books that we've studied prior to the wisdom literature that we've been studying this semester. Again, God revealed himself either directly through prophets or through history. In the wisdom literature, a little different perspective. Uh, in the wisdom literature, we see humanity, humanity seeking to discover God using human reason by reflecting on creation and human nature or reflecting on human nature being the human condition, which is what Job is doing. He's saying, look at this condition. What does that tell me about God? So humanity has to seek God and, and for, on the wisdom, has to seek God through wisdom. Uh, I'm saying this is one of the features of wisdom literature where humanity is trying to discover God by reflecting on creation and human nature. I was saying you have to do it that way, but that's one of the features of wisdom literature. Now, wisdom, of course, always originates with God. So, the, so humanity's efforts aren't creating wisdom; it's an attempt to discover wisdom. Or, uh, and the object, and the object, the purpose of all this. <coughs> either finding, either uh, revealed or discovered wisdom or truth is really the same. The object is still the same, and that's to discover the mind of God. Either have it revealed to you or discover it by reflecting on nature. So the purpose is the same trying to find and discover the mind of God. So you might think of what is revealed by God as Torah. We talked about Torah, the law. You might think of the law given to God. God gave it to humanity at Mount Sinai. Like God told Moses the law of the Ten Commandments. And what is discovered is what we call wisdom or wisdom literature. So Torah and wisdom, both of them are all about worship. And that's another word for saying worship is maintaining a right attitude or relationship to God. And justice maintaining a right relationship with our neighbor. Themes that come up over and over again. Our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor. Right? Worship and justice. And the point of all this, either either Torah or wisdom, is again then to conform our lives with what has been revealed or what we have discovered. In other words, to be obedient in order to receive the blessings <laughs> Again, this raises the question, are you doing it just to receive the blessings? But mm-hmm. that's the, the purpose of it. You want to conform your life in and then receive the promised blessings. And, of course, that's wrapped up in the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is where all things are in their proper order. All things are the way they're supposed to be. Everything is in harmony. And for the Israelites, again, it's always in the here and now. So they're, look, they're looking at a... You know, the blessing is a healthy, long prosperous and peaceful life and the logical implication of all this is that not conformance with wisdom or Torah or disobedience will result in the opposite, it will result in curses or loss loss of shalom and again just some, some key points 
But the common, the, the problem is that the common experience is the opposite. And this is what we're seeing with Job. His friends are saying some things that we all say, yeah, that's right, that's right. But Job is saying, but it doesn't apply to me because I'm, here I am, I've lost everything, but I'm not a sinner. It doesn't work. So the, the common experience is that the disobedient are often blessed and the obedient are often cursed. Again, they're looking at blessings and curses in this life. Right? Mm-hmm. right? So some unscrupulous people may be the wealthiest people. Well, from a Jewish perspective, wealth is blessing. So, and so the name given for this dilemma trying to figure out this this uh, this conflict is is theodicy. Right? Theodicy is a name for trying to understand the dilemma of why God, if God is an all loving or all just and all powerful, why do bad things happen to good people? God is all loving and just and all powerful. So everything you do which should reflect justice or love. And of course he's all powerful so he can do whatever he wants. And yet what he seems to be wanting is not happening. So a skeptic might say, well maybe either God is not all loving and all just or maybe God is not all powerful. And you might, as a Christian, you might even ask the question, which is maybe even more basic, why did Christ, who is infinite goodness, all good, have to suffer and die on the cross? I mean, there's an extreme example of someone who is just unquestionably perfect and good suffering. Well, now, maybe as Christians we have an answer for that, but, you know, go ahead. I, that's just, I was yeah. just thinking, we know why. We, we know in our hearts that Christ died for us. Right. What does that word mean, Joe? What? Yeah. The Odyssey. We had that in our the Odyssey is the, is the study or the, of the study of trying to answer this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's right here. It's in our notes. The Odyssey. That, that's a word given for that, trying to, trying to wrestle with that dilemma. And people have written books trying to explain. In fact, there's one book by, that Liz has read by um, Christian. Oh, he was a, um, a rabbi. A rabbi, a Jewish rabbi in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the concentration camp during the Holocaust, trying to explain and wrote a whole book on it. You know. And this is the dilemma that people really do deal with when they're suffering. It's not uncommon to question God. What, you know, what's going on? Even yeah. though we know the answer. Well, we know the answer to the Christ question, but yeah. you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Just as you I think that's going to be a question at the end of the world. Yes. Living people. Yes. yes, I think you're right. Yeah. 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 He said they're all the wrong We're never going to know. And and he doesn't have an answer as to uh, Maybe why. Why? Well, I, I think Probably I think this not. is a question that most people have well, have to do wrestle with in their life. Yeah. And some people can can come at, to a, a peaceful place with that, and some people can't. Or, but I think it's a question that everybody at some level 
needs to answer. And this is why it'll never be answered because everybody, I think, in a sense, has to answer it themselves. And I think it's all tied up with your own relationship with God. Yeah. Understanding how how you relate to God. He says in his book that he thinks that it's not so important that we understand why, because it's the mystery, yeah, the yeah. providence of God. But what do we do with it when we have it? And how do we comfort the people around us who are suffering? Right. And so that's what I got out of this yeah. book. And you you see one way that people try to comfort people is with Job's friends are doing. And it's all the <laughs> And is that is that working? I mean, is that is there are they providing? I, I sometimes think the best thing they did is, uh, I think it begins with, is three friends show up and they sit there for 30 days and say nothing. I think that was probably, sometimes you just need to be with the person because you really don't have an answer. But then they go and they start talking. So anyway, this is the basic question that Job is trying to answer. Right? Uh, and for Job, this is not some abstract theological question of the nature of God because... He sees himself as an innocent, good person who is suffering. But from, but from his point of view, it seems that God is cursing him. This is a picture from the Collegeville Commentary. If you have the individual book, you'll see that. And Job wants to know why. So, now, there's no question that Job is a good man because, as we discussed in our answers, Job is described as blameless, upright, righteous, as one who fears God and avoids evil. Right? And even God said this about Job. So there's no question that Job is a good man. And we talked about uh, personification of wisdom. You could see Job as, an, like we talked about Lady Wisdom. Well, Job is also personification of wisdom. He is all these things also. And yet, he seems to be cursed. He loses everything, right? Family, possessions, health honor, really what's left other than his life. Mm -hmm. Everything in this world is gone. And, and, you know, I think from a from a cultural perspective maybe this is even the worst. It was a very honor-based society. You lose your honor. That's that's the hardest thing. We lost it all. Uh, so last week we read the opening and closing books of Job. We talked about that being the, the folk tale versus chapter 1 and 2 and then the end. And then we read the first cycle. We got introduced to Job's three friends. Uh, and we're going to hear more from them. Uh, so in this, uh, so in the folk tale part, God allows Job to lose everything in order to test Job's motivation for his obedience. That's the way it's presented. Satan accuses him, and God says, okay, well, we'll, we'll, you can test him. Uh, But Job is not only obedient, um, uh, so that's the test. Is Job only being obedient just to get the blessings? And this is what Lisa was observing about probably most people. Our motivations are mixed. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I do believe that some people can have pure motivations. Most of us is probably not true. There's a mixture of things. Uh, you know, why do we do things? We may not even know why we do things. So is he is he is he being faithful because for love and loyalty to God, or just to get the blessings that Satan claims? So in the folktale part, Job remains faithful after losing everything. He passes the test, and everything is restored in double. He gets double back. It's a very simplistic tale. 
because you know. So in the end, Job is oh, he's better off than before. But I think about what about what about his poor kids, his husband, yeah. uh, and the poor wife. But you know, so it's a simplistic tale. Uh, well, let's take that. What? Let's start talk about that. Go ahead. The poor kids, and this is the wife. Yeah, yeah. He had more kids, but they didn't yeah, come back to life. His wife had her own problem with. It's not a partnership. Remember, we're not going up there and meeting our wives. We we're just a soul. We we'll never see our wives again or each other. Okay. There's no promise to that. Yeah, yeah, no. who knows what who knows what or what it'll be but but anyway so what so the, what's the point well what happens to them he's blaming himself because these kids he teaches them they often get married and they're on their own they screw up things yes yeah, so, that's so, so the tale is simplistic it doesn't get into I mean although one of the one of the uh, friends says oh your children sinned but the point of that is they sin, so, but somehow you're at fault. Mm-hmm. You're still at fault for their yeah, sins. Yeah, but you don't have to suffer because they didn't die. Sin. They died. He didn't die. Right? So it's, it's a simplistic tale, all from Job's point of view, really. It doesn't, it doesn't get into, what about the poor kids? Why did they have to suffer? Why did they have to die? So we can, you know, there's more, there's more to discuss, more to think about. Um... Well, I just got a lot to think about. Yeah, well, let's keep going then. So anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna really look into these yeah, in between dialogues, in between dialogues some more, uh, and this is of course where things get more complicated and hopefully more interesting. So in these dialogues, Job isn't as submissive as he appears if you just read the folktale part. All right, and we studied the first cycle of dialogues, cycle one last week. And this week we're going to read selections out of the remaining portions that we didn't read last week. So we're going to read we're going to read in cycle two. You know how each of the friends says something and then Job responds. So in this cycle we're just going to read Job's response. Now you can read it all if you want, but your assigned reading is just to read Job's response. Uh, after cycle three is finished, you don't have to read cycle three. There's what uh, is called an interlude, mm-hmm. and I was trying to describe it to Lisa. And if you can imagine it, like uh, if you, I, I've seen plays where you have the action on the mm-hmm. play, but there's somebody standing behind the curtain, and at some point that curtain starts making observations about the play. So it kind of the play stops, and then you hear somebody like outside commenting on it. That's what the interlude is like. It's like the narration between Joe and his friend stop, and you have this other guy that kind of starts making observations about the whole process. So there's an interlude where uh, another character comes in and makes his little speech. Um, uh, let's see. And then we get Job's final, Job's final arguments. And we'll talk about, talk, talk about this a little bit more. I'm just kind of giving you the overview. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. The, okay. So we get the interlude where there's like somebody above it observing on the whole process. Uh, then Job makes his final arguments, his final speech, and then all of a sudden we get a fourth character that comes in, maybe a fourth friend, and we're going to read a couple of his comments. Um, in essence, he's going to reiterate a lot of the arguments of the first three friends. 
And then, this is, this is the best part, I think, and then God, who has been silent all along, and that, to me, I love that, because God, you know, God is a very good listener. And God listens to everything. So God is listening to all this. He waits for everybody's done, and then God has his say. And we have, so God responds, and we have a theophany, another word. Theophany is like a, a sensual, uh, uh, a sensual uh, appearance of God. So God appears in a way that you can sense God with your five senses. So, an example, when God uh, uh, came in the, out of the cloud, Right, for Moses, well, that's the theophany. God is present, and you can sense God's presence. So you have God responding. I forget it's out of the cloud, but you'll hear God's booming voice. So there's a there's a theophany. We call that a theophany. God makes His presence known in a way that you can sense it. Okay, now I want to I want to take a look at each of these sections uh, just in a little more detail. Um, so, um, let's see, where am I at here? Okay, I'm going to jump ahead. So, uh, so, in the end, again, and we'll read the ending again. We'll read the ending book again. Right, so, in the end, again, everything is restored, again, double. So, in the end, the good Job does receive the blessings. Again, he totally ignores the children that are gone. But from Job's point of view, simplistically, uh, Job receives the blessings double. Right? So now we, the, now we, now we, the reader, of course, know the question of, within the within the story. We know that Job was a good man, but the characters in the story don't all know that. Although Job is pretty convinced he is. He thinks he is. He's convinced he is. His friends don't think he is. We know he really is a good man. But from his friend's perspective, Job is not a good man. Job is a sinner. And they base this conclusion on the traditional Deuteronomistic theology. We've said this many times, and that is sin leads to curses. And since Job is obviously cursed, everything that's happened to him, would be defined as a curse, he must defin- by definition be a sinner. Right? In a sense, case closed, Job is a sinner, and they have the solution. And that was brought up in our discussion. Their solution to Job is, all he has to do is repent, admit he's a sinner, and all will be well, and he'll be blessed again. How many wives? Uh, there's only one in there. Right? I mean, all of a sudden he's going to repent and he has five wives. What's going to happen to the five? No, I think... Yeah. Does anybody he remember? He one, and then he, he, got was, a, he got some more then? He got like another he one. Okay, I, I didn't remember. And seven more children. And, okay, so he got another wife. And seven. So everything was doubled then, right? Right. Yeah. Including yeah. the wives. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, now, now Joel... <laughs> Job agrees that he's cursed. So that's one thing everybody agrees on. <laughs> right, I'm glad you like it. Right? But he also judges himself as innocent. He, he judges himself as not a sinner. Right? And he is confident that he can prove that he is not a sinner. Now, 
he does agree with the Deuteronomistic theology. He does agree that God punishes sinners. That's true. He doesn't disagree with that. But since Job doesn't think he's a sinner, he challenges God to present the evidence against him. And I'm kind of summarizing cycle one. I don't know if you caught that out of it, but in the end he's saying, I'm not saying, present your case, God, to me. Right? Uh, and that's kind of like where we ended up at the end of, end of uh, cycle one. Uh, and now I'm going to take a look at the sections we're going to be reading this week. So, the first one is Job 19. Uh, chapter 19. Uh, in there, Job complains that he has been he has been abandoned by God. So he says, I crowd injustice and I am not heard. I cry for help, but there is no redress. Right? So there is no justice and there is no mercy, no help from God. And these are two attributes of God. God is a just God and God is a God who saves. And he's saying, I'm not experiencing that. And then he complains that he is, so he's been to feel abandoned by God. And he also says, I've been abandoned by all humanity. So, in these, I pull out a couple, but he says, I've been abandoned by the brethren, my friends, my kinsfolk, my companions, guests, handmaids, servants, my wife, my family, my children, intimate friends, those whom I have loved. Everybody has abandoned me, God and everybody else. Job is very descriptive. <laughs> a complainer, maybe, right? And yet hope remains. And yet hope remains. The Job himself says in 1925, As for me, I know my vindicator lives. He knows there's a God, a vindicator, who can bring him the justice and help that he asks for. Okay? Again, so I, after cycle three, we're gonna, you don't have to read cycle three. We have this interlude. And again, interlude. And... Again, it's like the narrator steps out of the story and interjects his own thoughts on wisdom. Uh, and this theme of this interlude is the inaccessibility of wisdom. The inaccessibility of wisdom. And the case is made that it cannot be produced or purchased by man. So you get uh, the verse, uh, I, I picked, okay, you get, um, must be 28, 15, I've got an extra 28 in it. So cannot, solid gold cannot purchase it, nor can its price be paid in silver. It's not something that man can produce or purchase. And he, they also make the observation that it can't be found in creation. And he explain that a little bit. So he says, the abyss declares it is not in me. So it's under the sea. The sea says, I have not, don't have it. Abaddon and death say, only by rumor have we heard of it. The point is, even creation you can't even find it in creation. And um, so at best what you can do, and the whole point of wisdom is to discover God by reflecting on creation and humanity, but the point that this person, is, this interlude is making is that even looking at creation and, and reflecting on man, you can, the best you can do is get a glimpse of it. You kind of get a reflection of God's wisdom. You can't really capture all of it. You can't really capture the essence of wisdom. 
And the reason is that only God truly knows and can fully comprehend wisdom. God knows the way to it. It is He who is familiar with this place. So you can be captured, but you can't capture it totally. It's just like you can't totally understand God. It's really saying the same thing. But there is a path to wisdom for man. You've heard it before. Behold, fear of the Lord is wisdom, and avoiding evil is understanding. So there is a path to approach wisdom, to come to uh, possess it to the to the extent in, that we are capable of possessing it. And we fear the Lord and avoiding evil. And and these are uh, and this is another description of Job, isn't it? And he was described as fear, having fear of the Lord, and he was described as avoiding evil. So this is again Job. Right? Again, Job, uh, Job wisdom personified again. So after this, we have Job's final closing arguments. And his final words are, This is my final plea. Let the Almighty answer me. The words of Job are ended. And he stops talking. Then, maybe out of the blue, we get another speech. We get a fourth guy that shows up, Yilhu's speech, Job 32 to 37. Uh, and Yilhu basically reiterates the arguments of Job's three friends, but he ends with a song of praise of the Almighty God of creation, which, right, so he ends with a praise of the God of creation, and that really turns into the segue for God's appearance, which you'll also be reading. So he's praising God, and then it leads right into, now God comes on the stage, God has something to say. God appears, again, describe it as a theophany, so it's a sensual, you can sense God's presence. Uh, And God says, out of the storm, like on Moses out of the mountain, I love this, gird your loins now, Get ready. Gird your loins like a man. Now I, this is God speaking, I will question you and you tell me the answers. Where were you when I founded the earth? God is turning around, turning it all around on Job. God then goes on to describe in detail how he created everything. Both inanimate, all the inanimate objects, inanimate objects, and how God maintains everything in order. God in creation is described as overcoming chaos, bringing order out of chaos. And where and where God asked Job, where God asked Job, where were you, Job, when I, God, was doing all this? Kind of putting putting Job in his place. And Job and Job gets it. He gets the point. And his response, then Job answered the Lord. Behold, I am of little account. What can I answer you? And that's really the right answer, isn't it? Wasn't there something we read this week in the readings that pertain to that? that well, Joe's been, a, Joe's been in the readings for the Mass uh, recently. Yeah, yeah, they have. Yeah. 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 Now, about the, 
Joe Bansky uh, saying to God, I have a little account. Why would you worry about the number of footsteps that I take or, or the number of breaths that I take? Something that prevented this week. Um, he alluded to him, him being so insignificant that why would God bother Yeah, him? yeah. And he makes that argument too. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sold. You know, why are you, why, do I really matter that much to you, God? Right. It's just an interesting question. And it, again, it points to how valuable we are to God. Because you can think, uh, you know, one question that I asked uh, in the scripture study recently is, well, why do you think God loves you? And, you know, occasionally I'll reflect on the fact that, you know, I'm one in how many billions and billions of people? Like, on one hand, like, why does God even take any notice of me? You know, and yet God seems to be very interested in each one of us. It's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah. Uh, okay, then we have a second theophany. Right? Some more words from God. Uh, would you refuse to acknowledge my right? Would you, con- would you condemn me that you may be justified? Right? Would you call me wrong so that you can be right? Have you an arm like God? Are you God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Again, putting Job, in, uh, putting him in his place, which is correct. I mean, where is our relationship to God? God is God, and 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 man is not God. A woman is not God. So God is challenging. I don't know if you get this, but in a sense, God is challenging Job. Okay. Uh, okay, try to be God. Play God. See if you can do the things that I do. I said, play God. You, know, you think you can? You're, you have all. You can complain about my what I do. Try to do what I do. Uh, and again, Job gets it. He gets it, and he repents. Uh, he says, "Then Job answered the Lord, I heard of you by word of mouth.' This is interesting. I heard you by word of mouth. Somebody else told me about you." But now my eye has seen you. Now I experience you myself. Therefore I disown what all what I have said and repent in dust and ashes. Mm. Now that I've seen you face to face, it's different. So and Job repents and and in that his mind has been changed and transformed. He has a different attitude. So not in the sense of repenting of sin, mm-hmm. but in the sense that to experience the presence of God or to experience the theophany is to be transformed. So to really come in the presence of God, you're not going to leave that unchanged. All right, so some conclusions. Some conclusions. Uh, so suffering does not mean that mean that a person is a sinner. Mm-hmm. So you might say, be careful. Be careful when you judge people. Suffering can be a test. It wasn't that case, and I think in this world that's still true. It can be a test. Um, there is a limit to the human ability to under- to discover God or discover wisdom. We can't fully grasp God. Yeah, and we have to understand our limits. There's a limit to being able to penetrate the mind of God through human effort. At some point, it really is beyond our capability as humans. 
We can't presume to cross the line between God and man. We are not God. And uh, one analogy is to to fall into the temptation of Adam and Eve to think you can really eat of the, of the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. And the fourth one is, and and so in the mysterious wisdom of God, a wisdom that really is beyond our understanding, and now we come to our Christian understanding of suffering. Suffering can have meaning. Right? We see that in Jesus it had great meaning as Ours has great meaning by joining ourselves to Christ. There can be value in suffering. And again, Jesus on the cross is the great witness of that. Uh, and I just want to end with a, with a personal reflection. And I've alluded to this before. Uh, I've always thought that the hardest thing for Job was God's silence. God, you're silent. And he's crying out and nobody seems to be listening. It's like nobody cares. And he certainly doesn't get much empathy or sympathy from his friends. And then, at the end, God speaks to him. And at that point, Job realizes God, in fact, was listening all along. And I think there's something about, uh, if you know someone is really listening to you, that can make a big difference in in whatever you're dealing with, if if you know somebody is really listening to you. So just the fact that he knows God was there and listening, I think that in itself can make things better. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you.